0: Well, uh, it took longer than we expected, uh, with with a cancellation one week and stuff. But we kind of got through an initial little three week series, and now we're going to be jumping in uh, to the Gospel of Mark. And I'm really looking forward to the time that we're going to have together in that Gospel. We're going to open up. You can go ahead and open up if you'd like. We're going to read in a little bit, Mark chapter one, going verses one through eight today. Um, but I want to just kind of introduce the whole series. We're going to be spending a good amount of time in the book of Mark and here's why we're going to do it because Jesus is not unpopular in the culture that we live in. A lot of you know, like we talk about kind of like the the, the decrease in our nation um, in in religious practice for sure and even acknowledgement of who God is, but it doesn't mean Jesus is unpopular. he still gets talked about and referred to a lot. Unfortunately, a lot of times as his name is used in vain. But I put some pictures pictures on a slide just so you can see a little bit of some of the images that you see of Jesus in our culture. This is kind of like this image of Jesus um, that, for whatever reason, some people really started to get into. And they'll even make bobbleheads and t-shirts and all sorts of things like that now. And it's called Buddy Jesus, where he's kind of doing this like thumbs up, You're okay, I like you. Whatever you're into, I like you. And that's some of the image that a lot of people in our culture have of who Jesus is. Uh, There was a craze probably two, three years ago now, um, where a lot of people wore these Jesus is my homeboy t-shirts. Everybody was wearing them. Rock stars were wearing them. Ashton Kutcher was wearing one. Just anybody would get these t-shirts. People who did not know or worship Jesus, as far as I know, would get these t-shirts because it was kind of hip. And Jesus was this kind of like, for some reason, this cultural icon, even among people who don't really know him or worship him. You can uh, get Jesus inked into your skin, you can get Jesus uh, in some kind of archaic, that's that's a guy's neck actually, really good artwork, um, but You can uh, get Jesus kind of put in some archaic, sterilized, religious box. A lot of people, that's the way they see Jesus. You talk about Jesus and the picture that they're getting is something like that. And so our pictures of Jesus come from so many different places. You can read about him in magazines. I mean, he's uh, he's not not talked about. He's on the cover of Newsweek and Time a couple different times. You can turn on the TV and you can watch the History Channel or... PBS, a number of different places will have documentaries about who Jesus is and the life of Jesus. And so in our culture where we hear so much, we need to know, where do we go? Where do we go to hear about who Jesus really is? Because if you you rely on t-shirts, TV, and Time magazine, you're probably not going to get a very good picture, a very accurate picture of who Jesus is. You can even go to a lot of churches now and hear an image of who Jesus is that is not accurate. And we don't want to be a church like that. A lot of churches will kind of give uh, this impression of Jesus that he is not so much the, the righteous judge who is seated on a throne raised from the dead. But they kind of have this picture of Jesus where he just told little baby lambs and little kids and that's kind of it. And he just says really nice things. And he's always calm and peaceful. Which sometimes Jesus does bring peace and sometimes he brings judgment. One pastor, maybe going a little overboard in in trying to make a point, said this. um, There's a strong drift toward the hard theological left. There's some emergent types, talking about other churches, who want to recast Jesus as a limp-wrist hippie in a dress with a lot of product in his hair who drank decaf coffee and made pithy Zen statements about life while shopping for the perfect pair of shoes. But in the book of Revelation, Jesus seems more like a prize fighter with a tattoo down his leg, a sword in his hand, and the commitment to make someone bleed. That's a guy that I can worship. It's hard for me to worship the the hippie diaper halo Christ because I cannot worship a guy that I can beat up. I fear some are becoming more cultural than Christian, and without a big Jesus who has authority and hates sin as revealed in the Bible, we will have less and less Christians and more and more confused, spiritually self-righteous blogger critics of Christianity. Okay, and that's pretty harsh, and maybe a little bit. He's making probably a good point that if we don't get at our foundation, at the core, who Jesus is, correct. That messes up a lot of things for us, not just here and now, but for eternity. And so we want to be sure that we as a church know who Jesus is and what Jesus does, and we want to take our cues from Scripture and from nowhere else. So we need to, what we're going to do in this series on the Gospel of Mark, is we're not going to watch a TV documentary and we're not going to read a magazine article. We're going to open up the Bible. God's Word revealed to us to show us who Jesus really is. And the Gospel of Mark is where we're going to look. We're going to answer, try and answer a few big questions in almost every sermon in this series. Here's the big questions we're going to try and answer. Because I think these are most important. One, who is Jesus? Who is He? Is He just a good teacher? Just a miracle worker? Is He more like God? Is He more like us? Who is Jesus? Okay. Second question we're going to answer probably in every sermon is... How do people, or sorry, what does Jesus do? So who is Jesus, and what does He do? And then we're going to ask, how do people respond to Jesus? You're going to see a lot of different responses as we go through the Gospel of Mark. But how do people respond to Jesus? Do people believe in Him or reject Him? Are people seeing Him as just some hero to follow for a time? Like your favorite band or favorite sports team? Or do people see Him as as God who is to be followed and obeyed forever? Do people think He's worth dying for? Is He really God? Will people follow Him or flee from Him? Will people be amazed by Him or appalled at Him? Will people be committed to Him or casual about Him? There's a lot of different options for how we respond to Jesus, and we'll see a lot of them right in the Gospel of Mark. And we'll have to ask ourselves, how am I responding to Jesus? And then the other question we're going to try and answer is, what gets in the way of a proper response? Why do some people see who Jesus is and see what he does, and they respond in awe and worship, and other people respond with seething anger and they want to kill him? What's the deal with that? And why do some people want to see him uh, rise to a position of power and they'll follow him to that point? But as soon as he asks them to do hard things, they back away and say, I'm not sure I want this anymore. So we're going to look at who Jesus is. And we're going to do it in the Gospel of Mark. Now we need to know a couple of things about Mark before we get in there. Here's what we need to know. Mark was written by a person. I'm going to give you one guess, okay? Mark was written by a person named Mark. Good job. Like 20% of you passed the test. Mark was written by Mark. Okay, Now, if you go through the list of the 12 disciples, you're not going to see Mark's name in there. John Mark was his longer name. He wasn't one of the original 12 disciples. But he received first-hand eyewitness accounts from the disciple Peter, and he wrote for Peter. Peter was probably just too hyper to write himself. Later, he did write some books as well. Um, but, but if, if you could just kind of know Peter's character, it's like, not sure, not sure that he could sit down and write a book. But Mark wrote this book why? Here's why Mark wrote this book. You can read more about Mark if you want to know about Mark. Turn to Acts chapter 15. There's a little dispute actually. He worked with Paul for a while. As Paul was going around and telling people about Jesus and starting churches, Mark traveled with him. But partway through, there was some dispute Mark left for a time. And then when they had the opportunity to work together again, Paul says, I don't want to work with Mark anymore. Um, So he said, I'm not working with Mark, and Silas says, well, I'll go with you, Paul, and Barnabas says, well, I'll go with Mark. And so the church kind of went in a couple, or the missionaries went in a couple different directions, but that's, by the grace of God, more churches got started that way, so it was good. Um, And so that's who Mark is. You can read a little more about him there. Um, Not one of the twelve disciples, and one thing that you'll see as we go through Mark is that he gets straight to the point. The other Gospels are all longer. Mark is the shortest gospel. It's called the go gospel. Forty-two times in the gospel of Mark, he uses the word immediately. He just wants to keep it going. He uses, and that, that word is only used twelve times in the rest of the New Testament. Okay? He makes it happen. He doesn't spend a lot of time looking at the teaching of Jesus, like some of the other gospel writers do. He has very little of the teaching of Jesus. He's mainly about who is Jesus and what is he doing. That's mainly what Mark is about. He wrote it to give an account of the life of Jesus, because at this point, listen, it's hard to put ourselves back there, but at this point in history, most people, the, the teaching that they received about Jesus was only through the word of mouth of other people. And some of the firsthand eyewitnesses were starting to get older, and so the Holy Spirit inspired Paul or Mark to write this gospel so that people could have a written account, so that years and generations later, 2,000 years later, we could hear the truth about who Jesus was. Okay? And so there was this need to have this written account so that everybody got it straight and didn't have weird ideas about who Jesus was. Most of the people who read Mark's Gospel were Gentiles, not Jewish people. Um, some Jewish people as well, but probably mostly Gentiles. Matthew was given mostly to Jewish people. Those who heard it more than likely, you can read conservative scholars. So, not like, I mean, you can read scholars that say whatever you want, basically. But, but some scholars who are good conservative scholars put Mark as being written in the mid 50s, and other people say in the mid 60s. Um, and, and it doesn't matter a whole lot, except for understanding what people would have been going through as they heard the Gospel of Mark read to them. That's another good point. Uh, most people probably didn't get a scroll. It's not like Mark got this written, sent it to Kinko's, and then it just kind of went out all over the place. Not a lot of people got to read it. Only a few people actually had a written copy in their hand. And so more than likely, as they heard the Gospel of Mark, it was heard to them read. It was read out loud. They'd gather together, and more than likely, like we do such small snippets, more than likely they sat down and had the whole thing read to them. Because they were probably hearing the whole story for the first time accurately. So they probably didn't get like to chapter four and be like, all right, well, I got uh, something in the crock pot. I got to go now. Um, they, they they wanted to hear probably the whole thing. And if this was written in the mid 60s, what had just happened in Rome is that Nero, there was a big fire in Rome and Nero was kind of on, he was the emperor at the time. A lot of people got upset with, with Nero thinking it was him that set the fire. He needed somebody to blame it on. And so he blamed it on this new religious sect called the Christians, and he's like, "Ah, oh, the Christians did it. And so they took the blame, Christians took the blame for who knows even who started this fire. And as a result, Christians were enduring incredible persecution, and I won't even get into detail of what it looked like, because it was ugly. It was like the most horrible things you could think of doing to humans uh, were done to Christians at the time. And so when Christians gathered together, a lot of times in Rome, they would gather underground in the catacombs, Uh, around dead bodies, because nobody would go looking for them there, and that's where they would gather. Uh, They didn't have probably nice purple chairs with that much padding on them like we do. So as they're hearing the gospel of Mark, we need to keep in mind, as we hear the gospel of Mark now, the people hearing it for the first time would have been in a much different situation than us. But some of the stuff, that the situation that they're in, some of it is very similar to our situation, because they were living in a world with a lot of conflicted ideas of who Jesus was. In their land, it was ruled by the Romans. Okay, The Roman Empire was huge at this time. So they lived in a land ruled by the Romans with a lot of high taxes. Herod had recently been appointed king, had all baby boys in Bethlehem killed. And after he died, the ruling got more complicated. But the one we hear about most in Scripture is a governor named Pontius Pilate. Okay? He was the governor at the time. The people were not unified. Um, even God's people pretty split up. Pharisees, Sadducees, a number of different kind of denominations within, within uh, the Jewish faith. A few, a few of them really devoted to the God of the Bible. Many of them not. It was a confusing world that they lived in. And people had a lot of confusing ideas about who Jesus was. And in that way, it was very similar to the world that we live in. And So I think Mark's gospel is going to speak very clearly to us as we go through this over the next months. I'm looking forward to it. Um, I want you to take your Bible and open to Mark chapter 1 with all of that introduction. Um, And we're going to look at verses 1 through 8. And as we read God's Word, let's stand together. I'm going to say a lot of words this morning, uh, but none of them as important as these words now. So we stand to kind of just make this stand out from everything else. Here is the Word of God from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than him, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You can be seated. You know, you read some books. Some books you read, it takes you a long time to get to the point. I, I'm I'm kind of dumb when it comes to reading books. Like I'll like I'll read like a, a mystery kind of thing, and you get to that point in the book where it's like you're supposed to get it, and I'm usually not there quite yet. That'll happen when Kirsten and I watch movies together. Um, she'll be like, she'll get it, and I'll just kind of like, I'm still waiting to get it. Like, are you gonna just explain it a little more clearly? Mark doesn't do that with his gospel. If you want to know what the Gospel of Mark is, you don't have to get to chapter 14 before you figure it out. It's in verse 1. Look at verse 1. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is saying this is the beginning of the Gospel. And Gospel was a word that if you would have heard it for the first time, you wouldn't have heard it for the first time if you had heard it here. You would have heard it many times, usually not in a church setting. The word gospel, we pretty much only use it now in our culture, in churches. But at this time, the word gospel would have been used for a proclamation of any really good news. Like when a people had been at war, and then the war finally ended, the gospel was proclaimed. Okay, The, the good news, that war that has been killing many of our young men, is now done, was proclaimed. That was good news. That was called gospel. That's how they used to use the word. And Mark takes this word, and many after him now will take this word and start applying it to Jesus. Because what Mark essentially is, the Gospel of Mark, it's a proclamation of the good news of Jesus. It's the announcement that everything else was leading up to. And it's kind of hard for us, because we don't live in the first century, and some of you have heard this news about Jesus. You've heard about Jesus since you were tiny little people. And as you've grown, you've heard more and more about Jesus. And you've heard about Jesus a lot. But for many of these people, this is an announcement that was new. And it was extremely good news to them. Because here's what had happened. Listen, for generations, prophets had spoken God's Word to God's people and to Gentiles alike. You remember that in the Old Testament? Many prophets coming before God's people and the Gentiles, but now the true and better prophet was here. The Son of God in human flesh. Jesus even said in in the Gospel of John, Jesus said, I only speak the words that come to me from the Father. Jesus is a good prophet. He truly speaks the Word of God to people. And this is the beginning of that. He is coming. And so all of the prophets that came before Jesus were just a type or a shadow leading up to Jesus. And now, this is a good news announcement. You don't have to listen to any more of these other prophets. Jesus is coming. Okay. And Jesus is not just a prophet, he's also a priest. Listen, for years and years, generation after generation, priests had offered countless sacrifices in temporary structures like the tabernacle and the temple. Many sacrifices were offered, but now Jesus comes as the great high priest. And He has come to be the sacrifice Himself once and for all. And to establish God's place permanently, not in a structure built by human hands that can be torn down or burnt, but in the body of Christ. So Jesus is the great high priest And all of the priests and everything in the Old Testament was just leading up to this grand announcement that your true priest, Jesus, has come. So it's good news. He's the prophet. He is the priest. And in the Old Testament, you read about a lot of kings. Jesus is the true king that we had been waiting for, that over generation after generation had been waiting for a good king. They had a few good kings mixed in there, but not very many. But this king, Jesus would come and he would bring perfect peace and perfect justice. And no other king before him had done that. They were all just types or shadows leading up to Jesus. And so they would have heard this announcement, this gospel, this good news, as really good news. And I'm afraid because we have heard it so many times, we might not hear it as good news. And that's dangerous. Jesse, if you could play that video clip really quick. It's a British guy talking, and so if you don't understand British guys talking, I apologize, but try and tune in because I like the point that he's trying to make. So go ahead and put that up. And it would be so easy to miss. I had the experience of walking down the main street of a city and being offered a leaflet. You ignore it or take it and then ignore it because you don't think it will do you any good. Well, there was an experiment conducted by a London newspaper. They got a man to stand just here, outside Oxford Circus Tube Station, offering people a leaflet. On the leaflet was the free offer of five pounds. All you had to do was bring the leaflet back to the man and he would hand you the cash right there on the spot. Hordes of people passed him and in three hours only 11 people came back for the money. They thought they already knew what he was handing out, but it wouldn't do them any good. So they either didn't bother to take it, they didn't bother to read it, or if they did read it, they simply refused to believe it. Okay, so, it would be so interesting experiment. Um, that was done. Uh, and, and I think that's what we can often probably do with the Gospel of Mark. When, when we hear the good news of Jesus, we can kind of be like a, shrug it off. I've heard that before. I'm not sure. I might even just totally ignore it, like getting handed a leaflet um, when you're on the road and just throwing it in the trash, right? So like how many, like you've gotten things handed to you before and uh, especially if you live in a city and you're accustomed to it, you're probably just going to throw it away right away. Some country people like us, we might go to the city like, oh, we will get free stuff, and then we'll look at it and stuff. And that's the people they're praying on, right? But, but this good news of Jesus, even if you've heard it before, I hope you'll hear it again. I hope you'll listen and hear this as good news. This is the good news of this, the, the beginning of the good news or gospel of Jesus. Jesus means the Lord saves and Christ we, we kind of always just attach it as some last name. But Christ is a title. That means Messiah or anointed one or king. This is the one they had been waiting for. He's the Messiah. So Jesus, the Messiah, the rescuer who is coming, the Son of God. Okay, We're going to hear a lot more about this as we go through the gospel. And then he actually uses, in verses 2 and 3, Mark uses the Old Testament to introduce Jesus. And he gives all the credit to Isaiah the prophet, but he's actually taking this from two different places in the Old Testament. Isaiah is just the major prophet, so he lists Isaiah. If you look at verses 2 and 3, it says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, but this first part, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. That's actually from Malachi. And I want you to turn there really quick. Turn to Malachi. It's the last book of the Old Testament, so it's just two books back from Mark. Malachi, I want you to turn to chapter... 2, in Malachi chapter 2, if you look at verse 17, it's going to lead up to this verse in in chapter 3, verse 1. Here's what it says in verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied Him? Here's how you've done it. By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? That's a question that people are asking. They're like, where's God? Stuff just doesn't seem like it's the way it's supposed to be. Where's God? And then here's the answer, the prophecy, in chapter 3, verse 1. It says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Okay. So that is what uh, Mark is quoting right here at the beginning of chapter one verse 2 and then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 when he says in Mark chapter 1 verse 3 the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord make his paths straight here's what Mark is doing he's saying hey this was prophesied long ago you guys have been waiting for this right and now the time is here the king the messiah the anointed one he is coming he says, Behold, prepare the way of the Lord. That's, that's the word for God that's used there. He's saying that this Jesus that is coming is God. That's a bold proclamation right away at the beginning of the book. Okay, And so he's saying, "Get." it's kind of like he's saying, roll out the red carpet. Let's, let's get the security team assembled because Jesus is coming. This is not a little announcement. This is a big announcement. I worked uh, at a hotel in Orange City, Iowa while I was in uh, college called the Dutch Colony Inn. Um, Everybody's Dutch in Orange City. Everybody. Um, And uh, and I worked at this hotel. And uh, interestingly, uh, while I was working there, while I was employed there, but not on the day that I was working, um, George W. Bush was campaigning uh, the first time around, 2000. Um, And uh, he came to do a little campaign speech in Orange City, and he was going to stay at the Dutch Colony Inn. Well, that's exciting because I worked there. Now, do you think that George W. Bush walked up to the front desk and said, "Uh, I got a reservation, Uh, Bush, George W.? No, he didn't. There was a messenger that came and prepared the way for him. Days before he even came, some people, I don't know if they get the secret service while they're campaigning, but some important people came into the hotel, reserved rooms on either side of him and below him, uh, and the one that he was going to stay in, and made sure all of the security stuff was tight, so, sec- so secure that me, the college student, couldn't even work um, when he came. They had to have, like, the owner working at that time. Um, but as they got ready for George W. Bush to come, they rolled out the red carpet. They had a lot of stuff to do to prepare the way for him to come, to even do something as simple as sleep at a hotel. Okay? Um, because when important people come, important things are done ahead of time to prepare the way for them. And that's what John the Baptist is doing here. He is in a not very important person himself, but he is preparing the way for somebody who is infinitely important. And so we need to know how he does that. That's what we're going to look at uh, as we finish this up. Now you might recall when I came here and candidated back in October, I preached on John chapter 1. Uh, and John the Baptist. Uh, and so some of this stuff we're going to go over a little quicker because we just went over it about three months ago um, together. Um, but we went through John's account, and Mark's account is a little different. And so let's look first at verses 4 and 5. How is it that John is coming to prepare the way for Jesus, who is the Christ, who is the Son of God? How is he preparing the way for him? Let's look at Mark chapter 1, verse 4. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, Um, John is coming, and he is very similar to a lot of Old Testament prophets. He really is kind of the last of the Old Testament prophets, preparing the way for Jesus. That's what all the prophets of the Old Testament were doing, and that's what John is doing. And here we're going to find out how he goes about doing that. He's doing two things in verse 4 at least. He's preaching something and he's doing something. Here's what he's preaching. He's preaching repentance. Okay? The other Gospels make that even a little more clear. They say he was preaching a message and here's his message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was a simple message. I told you uh, when I candidated that you would probably take me on the spot if I said that's how short my sermons were, right? Repent. Kingdom of heaven is at hand. Sermon over. See you guys later. See you next week. That was his message. It was very similar. Went over and over again. He said uh, not very seeker-sensitive things to people. When the when the Pharisees came to him, remember what he said to them? He saw them coming. He said, hi, welcome to our church. Take a welcome folder, fill out a card. We'd be happy to have you back. Um, instead, he says to them, you brood of vipers. That's how he welcomes them. Hi, brood of snakes. Good to have you here. Um, That's what he says, okay? His message is a message of repentance. So he's preaching repentance, which means turning away from sin, and he's doing something. He's baptizing people. Baptizing, he was dipping them, their whole body, into the Jordan River and then taking them back out. And all that was was a visible or outward sign of the message that he was proclaiming, and that's that you need to be cleaned up. You're dirty. Jewish people probably would have looked at this and thought at first, like, you know what, I'm not going to do that. That baptizing stuff, that's for Gentiles. That's for the dirty Gentiles. If they want to kind of come in and be a part of us a little bit, they need to get baptized first. I'm pretty clean. I've been following the laws, okay? I'm fine. That's for Gentiles. That's what they would have been thinking as John was preaching this. But you notice um, in verse 5, we'll look at this in a second. Where they're coming from. They're coming from Jerusalem, assuming there's a lot of Jewish people that are coming out and being baptized. So he's preaching to church people, right? He's telling church people, people that thought that they were religious enough, that they were good enough, that they were doing all the right things, he's preaching to them and telling them, repent. Okay? Their main problem, they got a lot of problems. Listen, they got a lot of problems. Um, bondage to Rome is a problem, but it's not their main problem. High taxes, problem. Not their main problem. The feeling like our nation just ain't what it used to be. Problem, but not their main problem. What's their main problem? According to John, how is he preparing them for the coming of the Messiah? He's telling them to repent for the forgiveness of sins. Their main problem, my main problem, your main problem, is sin. And that's how we get ready for the Messiah to come. We'll see throughout this book that the ex-understanding of of what the Messiah was coming for needed a lot of correction. A lot of people didn't really get why Jesus had to come. And you know what? I think that's true in our world today, that a lot of people don't really get what Jesus is all about. They think Jesus came to teach some nice things and teach people how to live at peace with each other. That's not why Jesus came ultimately. They think Jesus came and he, he worked miracles, he came to start a religion. Jesus didn't come for any of that. The reason Jesus came was because of your sin and my sin. That's why he came. And so the best way to prepare for the coming of Jesus, John the Baptist sees, is in telling people that they're sinners. And that's hard to do. That's why we don't do it very often or often enough in our evangelism, but we need to hear it. Um, we've been having some issues at our rental house. Uh, we have had the sewer back up multiple times. Uh, the drain in our basement just kind of and bubbles up, and it's gross. Um, and uh, we don't have to use our basement except for to do laundry. And so every once in a while there's this lake uh, standing in front of the washer and dryer, so Kirsten can't get to that, and we can't use it because it's not draining properly. And so a couple times the Roto-Rooter guy came out, and he poked around in there, and he's like, all right, and then two days later it would happen again. And so he came again, and he did it again. Um, But we came to find out that what we really needed was not somebody to poke around at stuff a little bit, We needed an entirely new sewer line. So they came and they dug up the yard, put in a new sewer line, and even that didn't work, so they had to dig out even further. I think that's the way it is with our sin. That a lot of times what we like to do and what other people might like to do is they might like to poke around that a little bit. Like try and manage it, right? Like I got this sin issue, but I'm working on it. Um, You know, like you'll talk to people who aren't believers and they're like, well, I know I'm not doing everything right, but. You know, I mean, everybody's a sinner, right? Like, everybody's got little drainage backup stuff going on, right? And and it's in their basement, and it's not a big deal. And most people don't even think that they really need to deal with it until it begins. I mean, it stinks down in the basement, but it's the basement, right? Nobody goes to the basement. We're fine. I I just got a little sin issue, and it's fine. It's in my basement. Nobody knows about it. But pretty soon... If you don't do anything about it, it starts to back up, and then pretty soon it's going to be in your carpet on the main floor, and then you've got to do something about it, right? And that's the way you often treat sin. But here, Mark's just, or Mark is just showing how John is very upfront with the people. He's like, hey, you guys got a problem. And you know what it is? It's sin. You need a new sewer line. You don't need to poke around with the Roto-Rooter guy a little bit. You need a whole new sewer line to come in. You need to find a way to purge that stuff that's bad, and what you're doing now is not working. You need a sin savior. You don't need somebody... Here's another thing that happens with our evangelism. I really challenged us last week to be bold in proclaiming the gospel to other people. Some people, as we proclaim the gospel, we start with like a, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And that's true, but what that does is it causes people to say, okay... I've been making a lot of plans for myself. They're not all working out. I'll try this God having a wonderful plan thing for a while. And as soon as that doesn't work out, they're like, well, that one didn't work either. And then they walk away. But if when we share the gospel, we are clear in sharing about with people that the reason they need Jesus is not because they need a divine plan changer. They need a divine sin taker. That's what they need. That the problem that they can't do anything about is their sin. That's the problem I can't do anything about. I can't manage it well enough. I can't, I can't get rid of it. I deserve the punishment for it. And so we need to be clear with people about their sin. And we need to be sure that we're clear about our own sin as well. So, verse 5. He's all about sin. That's always preparing people for Jesus coming. He's talking to them about their sin. And in verse 5 it says, And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to Him, and were being baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. People are coming to hear this guy preach. They are flocking to him. Some estimates, as they kind of look at uh, just historical records, some estimate that during his time, John the Baptist preached to 300,000 people over his lifetime. That's a lot of people. People were flocking to hear this guy preach. And it's not like really kind, nice, like he doesn't have video clips. And he doesn't have like a nice haircut and skinny jeans, um, and he's not like like that's not how he does pastoring work. The way John the Baptist prepares people for Jesus is he wears goofy stuff and yells at them a lot. Um, that's 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 what Pastor John the Baptist is like. Okay, but he's preparing people for Jesus, and they're flocking. And you notice all sorts of people are coming. He's not the big city church, and everybody's coming to the big city church. He's just out by the river. And all the people from this are coming out to the river. People from Jerusalem and Judea. The whole country. You got city people, you got country people, you got Jewish people, you got Gentile people. All sorts of people converging to hear this guy yell at them about their sin. Interesting. Okay? Lots of people coming. And we need to know this um, that Jesus isn't just for other people. Okay? We need to come. We need this. And a lot of the Jewish people in Jerusalem knew that they needed this, and so they came. And he was preparing them for the coming of Jesus. And in order to do that, they had to deal with their sin. It says at the end of verse 5, they were confessing their sins. Some of you, like, even the thought of that, like, well, I can confess a few things. Like, how about, I'll I'll do a nice one. Like, sometimes um, when people cut me off in traffic, I get mad. Like, we confess sin like that because it doesn't hurt that bad. But we all have sin that goes a lot deeper confessing that to other people, just not quite so sure about that. But the truth is that we need to confess our sin to each other because our sin is our main problem. And we need to allow, um, if you've had surgery before, um, you know that surgery is painful, right? But the reason you have surgery is because something needs to be fixed. You don't have surgery for no reason. Something needs to be fixed. So right now, there's maybe like this low-level pain, you know? Like, oh, I should probably get it checked out. And then you're going to have surgery, and then there's going to be a lot of pain for a period of time. But the idea is that after that, then the pain is gone, right? And that's the way it is with, with our sin that sometimes we can kind of like, well, it's not that bad right now. It's still in the basement. It's not affecting me or a lot of other people right now. So I can kind of keep that a secret and not really deal with my sin right now. It's just going to be down here. But as that continues over time, we need to recognize that it's just going to get worse. And if people who don't know Jesus never confess their sin and trust in Jesus for forgiveness, they're going to suffer an eternal torment in hell. And so we need to be willing to go into surgery and just say, Holy Spirit, come and change me. Save me, sanctify me, do your work in me, deal with my sin. I know I need to deal with my sin. I know we need to deal with our sin as we are preparing for Jesus to come again. Now, let's look at these last three verses really quick. I'm not going to spend as much time um, on these um, last ones, but it's interesting um, For the gospel writer Mark, who's very succinct, and he doesn't waste a lot of words, it's interesting that he spends one verse talking about the fashion and diet of John the Baptist. Why does he do that? Why is verse 6 in there? Look at verse 6. This is the beginning of the gospel, the good news announcement of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he's going to tell us what John is wearing and what he eats? Well, who cares? Why is that in there? It says, now John was clothed with camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Okay, that's strange, but why is that in there? Turn really quickly to 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 8. What? 2 Kings. first Kings 1, verse 8 doesn't make any sense in this context. Let's go to 2 Kings chapter 1. Verse 8, this is about uh, Elijah, and in, in Malachi it also says that before the Lord comes, there's going to be Elijah the prophet who comes. John the Baptist is like Elijah the prophet, and so this is the way that he dresses and the way that he eats are a way that points to him being the one preparing the way for the Messiah. Okay? So that's why it happens. Look at Second Kings chapter one, verse eight. Here's what it says. They answered they answered him. This is about Elijah. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist, and he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. Okay? He's getting his fashion design from Elijah the prophet because he is the new Elijah preparing the way for Jesus, the one who had been prophesied to come. Not only was Jesus prophesied, but John the Baptist was prophesied in the Old Testament. That one who would come, who was like Elijah, who would come and prepare the way for the Lord. That's who John was. Coming to prepare the way for the Lord. Verse 7 then. Verse 7 says this. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy of to stoop down and untie. John knows his identity. We talked about this when I came in October. John's got a pretty good idea of who he is compared to Jesus. Do you have a pretty good idea of who you are compared to Jesus? John's idea is this. I'm not even worthy to be his slave. That's what slaves did. They they stooped down and they untied their master's sandals. He says, I'm not even worthy to get down on my knees by this one. Right now, John is Mr. Popular. People are flocking from the city and from the country to hear this man preach. But this man, he knows what is true. He says, thanks for coming. You know what? I'm nothing compared to the one who is coming after me. He is mightier than I. He's mightier than I. I'm not even worthy to be his slave. He's coming. Don't look at me. Look at him. When I candidated here, I made the commitment to you that I would not do anything but just shine a spotlight on Jesus. That's what I said I wanted to do. And that commitment, like now that I got the job, I didn't decide not to do that. I still want to do that as your pastor. I want to shine the spotlight on Jesus so that we can all see how good he is. That he is mightier than I. That as we see ourselves, we see ourselves in comparison to Jesus. We see his perfection and his holiness. And then we're okay looking at our sin. Say, it's okay, I can confess this to you. I can start dealing with this. I don't have to hide it anymore. Because I know one who is perfect and holy. And he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God interceding for me. And that's my hope. John knows who he is in relationship to Jesus. This is not the good news about Mark. This is not the beginning of the Gospel of John the Baptist, son of Zechariah. This is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it's good. I'm looking forward to the time that we're going to have together in this book over the coming months. What we're going to do um, is we're going to go through chapter 6 before summer, and then take a break in the summer and go through an Old Testament book. And then jump back into this uh, in the fall again. I want to look at verse 8 before we're done. It's the last verse we're looking at today. It says, I have baptized you with water, but He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. See, John says, here's the deal, everybody. What I'm doing, I'm getting you wet. Like you came, you were dry, now you're wet. That's about all I'm doing. Okay? Okay. I'm doing something very external. I'm baptizing you with water. That's all I can do as a man. That's all. It's an external kind of thing. But it's pointing to something much greater that is going to happen internally. And for all of us who have trusted in Christ as Savior, something that has happened internally. Right? That is, that the one who is coming, Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's going to do something deep inside that affects the very core of who you are. He's not just going to do something external. He doesn't just want you to change the way you look to other people on the outside. He doesn't want to do something external. He wants to do something deep and internal. And that's what Jesus is coming for. So John is just preparing us. Now the rest of the book is really all about Jesus. Mark said this is the beginning, just the beginning of the gospel, the good news, the announcement of Jesus, who is the Messiah, the Son of God. And he used this guy, John the Baptist, who wore camel's hair and ate honey and locusts to prepare these people and us for the coming of Jesus. And I am looking forward to this. This is the good news, and I hope you come back, and week after week, you just long with me to hear the story of Jesus with some fresh ears. This is a story about Jesus. It's about who He is, and about what Jesus has done. And we need to ask ourselves, how are we going to respond to Jesus? Are we going to be awe-filled, worshiping, obedient disciples? We're calling the series, the Jesus we follow. Because it is mainly about Jesus, but it's also about us following. Mark is also this, this book about discipleship. It talks a lot about Jesus and following Him. So we're going to learn a lot about discipleship. We're a church that we say that we're about disciples. And if we want to know what discipleship looks like, I think we need to look to the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus is making disciples and see how He did that, and how those disciples go about making disciples, so that we can truly be a church. It is all about the glory of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ, making disciples of all nations and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, knowing and trusting in the good news that Jesus is always with us.